0: So we're back with Dustin Degman for joining us for part two. Dustin is a CRNA and Associate Professor of Anesthesia at Western Carolina University. And we're going to continue our conversation with him today about combat trauma anesthesia. And so if you missed the first segment, you missed a a lot of information on the challenges that Dustin faced while serving at Ford Operating Base Oregon E in Afghanistan in November of 2012 into 2013. And so go check that podcast out, but we're going to jump back into it and we're going to focus a little bit more specifically on the specifics with damage control resuscitation. And so, Dustin, let's talk about that for a bit here. You were the sole anesthesia provider on a Ford surgical base, Correct. Um, on Ford operating base. And uh, you're on call 24-7 for the months that you were there. It must, right. You know, you're, you're far away from home. You're, you're out on the front lines. It must have been a really
1: challenging place to work. So um, out on the front lines, that's kind of an interesting statement. We always felt like with medical, we were um, very much just a supporting role. We never really looked at our role as an important role, much like that with infantry and even the flight medics that have to go out there and in the battle to get the guys to take them somewhere, we were um, relatively safe, you know, on the fob. There's a lot of different terms for living on the fob. One is a FOBIT, like a hobbit, but you live on the. Fobbit. And the other one is a is a pogue, and it's usually introduced with a, a, a nasty word before the word <laughs> pogue, and pogue being person other than grunt. So we were. A pogue, uh, a fobbit, and I understood that. Being in a supporting role, we just kind of are there, you know. Our roles, not so much on the front line as compared to what we think of others.
0: Sure. <laughs> well, well, thank
1: you for clearing that.
0: No, 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 it's and, fine. And, and that's what a lot of this is, uh, you know, helping. You know, our listeners uh, who may or may not be involved in the military understand both. And, and I'm, I'm very much looking forward to part three of this interview where we talk a little bit more specifically about how to support sure. friends and family who are in the military, who, yeah. are, who are abroad and who are coming home. But, yeah, I, I think that that kind of information is great because that helps us all understand what folks are Yeah, and it's going funny
1: because people say thank you and you just don't even feel like you're the ones that should be thanked. You know, you always feel like the other guys that spend three weeks in the field and don't get a shower and... Um, man, you know, it's those young, swearing 18 to 22 year olds, 24 year olds that you, you learn to admire, but <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, we have a lot of admiration for you for,
0: uh, oh, thank you. helping to patch those guys back up um, when they need it most. So let's get into a little bit more on that. So sure. The damage control resuscitation. Um, how did you prepare for cases uh, and manage your physical environment, your workspace, your anesthesia machine, supplies,
1: drugs. Tell us a little bit about that. How did sure. you set up and get ready? So, as I had said on the first part, you know, I just needed to memorize where everything was, and I had my own airway conics. And a conics is just like a little cargo box. You know, there's a cargo box of nothing but airway stuff and nothing but anesthesia stuff. And I would go in and inventory that stuff, make sure my ORs were good and up to date, make sure my medications were up to date and good. Um, I had everything I needed right there in the OR. Um, I had type O negative type. Actually, most of it was positive blood cells in the refrigerator. I had factor seven on the shelf. I had narcotics in, um, in a very secure lockbox. um, I had everything at my disposal. I had a level one. I had a Drager anesthesia machine. I had plasma warmer, uh, FFP warmer. I really had a good setup. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah.
0: So, so, the so, I was ready
1: for damage control. Right. <laughs>
0: that sounds good. Yep.
1: Did you follow
0: a typical ABCD initial assessment approach to your yes. patients as an anesthesia provider? Mm-hmm. I know I knew, uh, the BRITs teach a, a trauma assessment that starts with circulation and control of hemorrhage. Right. Uh, ATLS goes with airway breathing circulation and, and so forth right so what, what was your actual assessment approach to these trauma patients
1: yeah when they got to us hopefully the CABC, the control bleed airway breathing circulation some of that was already done like um tourniquets were applied um sometimes the airway was already in by the time we get them a lot of times the needle uh, would be placed for a needle cr- or a um, decompression of the chest. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, decompression of the chest. So they'd already do that with the needle. And then, so our medics would put a chest tube in. So some of the groundwork was done. Some of it wasn't, you know, Uh you would have a patient that was hurting pretty bad. And then we try to find out the exact mechanism of injury. That's one thing that I would have to say that you not, you don't get a little bit all that comfortable with is in the civilian world, we tend to get a patient that's intubated that needs to be intubated. I didn't, expect to get a screaming or intensely hurting patient, you know, where I'm not used to being in the emergency room where right. they're right at the initial cause of injury and hurting We're, so bad. And then our primary role in nurses is wanting to care and to, and to take care of that pain, but you cannot give them anything yet. You need to find the mechanism of it, where all injuries are before we go back to the OR. And that, that was a little bit... uh Discomforting.
0: Yeah, it's right. a different role yes. as an anesthesia provider because here in the States, right, oftentimes our patients have, have swung through the ER, they've gotten their initial assessment, the, CT the, scan. Yeah, the ED doc has right. intubated them if, if the paramedics haven't already. So some of that initial management has been kind of screened and taken care of before they arrive to us outside the OR. We take them in and we do their surgery. Exactly. You're saying you're meeting these people kind of in more of an emergency room type environment
1: and having to manage them from start. And the other thing that was different in a role that I had to do was we were responsible from the uh, neck up assessment. So we were responsible for finding lacerations of the head, bleeds of the head, checking the tympanics, doing a um, Glasgow Coma Scale, and there was the ICU nurse was responsible for taking everything that was stated out loud and putting it on paper on actual time. So I would say, you know, Glasgow Coma Scale of twelve uh head is uh, intact. But the fact of the matter is, when you get an I.D., they've got glass and just crap in their hair. And the Afghans have thick hair, mm-hmm. or they'll puke and they'll be, you know stuff in there. It was kind of not all that fun to do a head assessment yeah, sure. a at all. Right. Right. Uh, they'll have cud. They'll have like this narcotic type chew that they would have, you know, and you'd have to do an airway assessment and remove that crap from their mouth. Yeah. But, you know, just, um, that that was part of it. That was a little bit of a different experience for me. And then right. if they if they did rupture their tympanics, you knew they were close to the blast site. Like when they wow. rupture their tympanics, yeah. that tells me that we need to put a cervical collar on. We need to make sure they have a CT of the head at a later time. Like they were too close. Right. So right. That's interesting. That's something you won't see typically, maybe except in a Boston, you know, bombing right, incident right. where. You're checking panics because you're afraid of they may be too close to an explosion. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah, that's an interesting difference.
0: When when folks would show up to you uh, uh, that needed to be intubated, and you said that you know large percentage of cases are, are hemorrhagic uh, traumas. Right. So you're concerned about hypotension and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Walk us through a typical induction for you. How would you put that patient to sleep? How would you secure their airway? Right. Um, are you using typical Equipment for airway management, tell us about that. So no fluids, they want no crystalloid,
1: no crystalloid hypotensive. You had crystalloid available, there. We did. But your goal... So the, the medics would start crystalloid solution limited. And then, so we wanted the pressures low. We wanted the pressures 80 to 90 systolic. And the tourniquets were placed... And it was all about forming a clot. And do not budge that clot. So and, and most
0: tourniquets are placed in the field before they, they come are, here.
1: They are. And they're one-hand tourniquet you can use. And everybody, everybody has a tourniquet. You carry it with you 24-7. And it's got a real bright red appearance to it. So you can't miss it if you're... Extremity's blown off. You look for the extremity and pull the tourniquet. And some people, you know, especially infantry, they'll have two or three places of tourniquets on their body, that, mm-hmm. on the pockets. So you just look for the tourniquet. And each base kind of standardized where the tourniquet was going to be located, whether it's on the right leg or. Mm-hmm. So uh, you place the tourniquet. You keep that pressure low. You give them no crystalloid. It's all about forming that fibrin clot. So to form that fibrin clot means you give them factor seven. That will help in the process of forming fibrin through the extrinsic, process, the extrinsic pathway, and given TXA, to prevent plasminogen from actually breaking down that clot. So immediately, if we suspected hemorrhage, first thing I did, when I came to my FST. I warmed FFP. It takes about 25 to 35 minutes a warm FFP, mm-hmm. uh, because it's hard as a rock. It is hard. As a rock. It's frozen. It, it's absolutely frozen, yeah. fresh frozen to the core. So it takes a while to unfreeze that. So in the meantime, I'm given TXA, I'm given factor seven and we're waiting to try to form that clock, keeping the pressure down, go back to the OR, give FFP, give PAX cells and then paxcell cell platelet, paxcell cell platelet.
0: Right. So you didn't have platelets available. Correct. You had no. FFP available.
1: And no cryo. Correct, yes. And no cryo. FFP.
0: So you are transfusing along a one-to-one yep. algorithm, apparently. Exactly. Yeah, instead of a one-to-one-to-one, right. FFP, platelets, packed red blood cells. You're doing pi- packed red blood cells and FFP. Yep,
1: one-to-one. that's correct. Great. That is correct. And um, so we did do inductions with the Tomidate. It was the easiest thing to teach my medics to use Tomidate, Atomidate and Sox. Yeah. We did have propofol available, but just propofol was harder to come by where I was, and it, we had a lot of Atomidate, so we just used Atomidate. And it was easy for me to just teach my medics, give a stick of Atomidate, and then give a stick of socks because they were the ones that had to care for most of the patients and that I would teach for intubation. So I would be on learning mode. I'd be there with them. We actually had a little glide scope too. So mm-hmm. to teach them anatomic structures, to teach them, I wanted to narrow the focus on airway. I did not want them to focus on how much of something do I have to give. It's very easy to say, give a stick of Atomidate, give a stick of, a stick of Now you're,
0: you're drawing those up in advance though.
1: Yes. Yeah, They're
0: always ready. And no pre-filled syringes or anything? Or- the Atomidate
1: was pre-filled. Okay. And the how, how much is in a stick? 20 milligrams? 20 milligrams. Yeah, 20 milligrams. Great. And um, so that's just the simplest means. I could have done a lighter propofol or maybe even a little versed propofol, uh-huh. but for just. Did you use ketamine much? So they wanted us using ketamine on our neuro cases, believe it or not, yeah. uh-huh. uh, for preventing of ap- apoptosis. So um, or neuro death. They they felt like it was helping the soldiers in preventing death of the neuro, you know, the brain. Right. Right. So, um, that was a change of practice from what I was taught. I think some it. of the,
0: some of the recent studies are coming out sh- that shows that ketamine does not necessarily increase ICP, that it can be safely used right. with appropriate dosages in, 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 neurotrauma.
1: And so they wanted us doing the, I believe the two milligrams per kilo, and I don't know the exact dose, but I believe it was just a standard induction dose of ketamine on top of intubating and giving dilantin, Um, working in flagell, which was a little bit different than Mm -hmm. most of our other guidelines because our other guidelines were were open head wounds was Mm flagell on top of, um, ANSEF, but pretty much everybody got ANSEF, nothing but ANSEF. Now our ortho trauma doc also wanted gentamicin given on all of open bone fractures. Um, but for the most part it was ANSEF only, ANSEF and flagell, ANSEF, flagell, dilantin, no steroids. They did not want that steroid use for our spinal cord or head cases. Uh-huh. And the rationale behind that? So there was a study that came out to show um, protection of neurons on spinal cord injuries, but it was one study. And they were having difficulty replicating that study, and yep. they just they didn't feel the need for it Yeah. on our clinical practice guidelines.
0: So you had a Glidescape available? We did. Uh, McGill's, Max, typical airway, typical ET tubes? Yep just, or?
1: yep, just typical ET tubes. They were all just standard ET tubes. I didn't have really any rays or, or rays. So did you do a lot
0: or, of uh, LMAs? or uh, No, or zero King, LMAs. King tubes or anything? We superbotic? did.
1: No, no. It, it was trauma. so Folks it was, are getting intubated. Yep, they're great, getting intubated. Great. All
0: right. What kind of access would you establish for your patients? So arterial lines, central lines? No.
1: I mean, it was all 16. I, I really made a point to my medics. I want a 16 on the right, 16 on the left. Yeah. Two 16s. And it really wasn't that tough to get that when, on a fit person. Right. When would you put in a central line? Uh, so they wanted us to put central lines in when we decided to get 3% sodium. Interesting. Because they're so bundled up. By the time we sent them back out, we called it a, like a burrito. Like yeah. they literally are wrapped and wrapped and wrapped. That the only thing that sticks out is the ET tube. Because on the helicopter flight, they get cooled really fast. Yeah. So because we d- couldn't have an eye on a peripheral, if the 3% was to infiltrate, you could lose that extremity. That's spheres, yeah. Right. So they wanted a central line where I was. Now, that may not have been a part of the clinical practice guidelines, but that was part of uh, our surgical guidelines with the team I was with that they wanted. Yeah.
0: That's interesting. Did you? So, so occasionally you, you would do central lines. What about right. arterial lines?
1: For- yeah, we try to use arterial lines. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. We try to use them most definitely. Yeah. Okay. Try to get the IVs, use the non invasive, make sure that pressure was at least elevated enough, the 85 90, and then get your A line in. Interesting. And we had ultrasound. Uh Yeah, we had the fast uh, Uh ultrasound for the abdomen. We used to also use that for the A-line. I got a funny A-line story was um, our general surgeon doc was looking at the ultrasound to put in the um, A-line. And uh, as he was doing it, I was like, hey, you're in the artery. He's like, no, I'm not. And I said, yes, you are. He said, no, I'm not. He's looking at the ultrasound. I said, yes, you are. Look at your needle. And the blood was going all the way back up. The, you know. <laughs> he was fixated on the screen. He was fixated on the screen. He wasn't nice. looking at the actual site itself to see that there was blood nice, already filled nice. up in this. <laughs> That's
0: funny. Yeah. It, 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 there is a little bit of a learning curve when you start, uh, you know, using the ultrasound. Yeah. And, and it, it, it helps to have, to have eyes on the screen and yeah. eyes on the needle. Yeah. I found that to be true. That's, that is funny. Um, did you do uh, pulmonary arterial catheters at all? Nope. Nope. No reason.
1: Foley's? I don't remember. Um, you know, they were there for such a short time that.
0: Not too, not too crucial
1: no, to the No, it wasn't crucial at all because we weren't given big crystalloid anyway. We weren't, yeah. we weren't shooting. Now, for burn patients, which I did not have a significant burn patient. Uh huh. Uh, we did have thermal IDDs that blew That at that point you got to question whether they inhaled during the heat of the explosion, right. you know, whether they could have pulmonary complications or not. Uh, but for the most part on those burn patients, you know, our soldiers are so Kevlared up and our multi-cam uniforms are, um, resistant, they're burn yeah. resistant, that most of the burns were on the neck or the face, the hands, if they got burned. That's interesting. So that yeah. body armor really helps. It helped a lot. Yeah. 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 That's fascinating.
0: So very limited crystalloid, it sounds like yeah, so and, we weren't
1: really too concerned, but they did use the burn protocol off of urine output. We really restricted right. okay. our fluids, okay. which made it kind of different than the Parkland formula.
0: So what goals did you volume resuscitate patients to
1: with colloids? Were there were there parameters that you used? Were yeah. there lab values? It was strictly okay, so we didn't want our INR. Well, okay. So we wanted our systolic 80 to 90. Uh-huh. If it was a non-head trauma, head trauma, obviously we want our cerebral perfusion pressure. We want our MAPs elevated, 85, you know, to 90. Uh, but for those that knew, we knew that didn't have any head trauma, then we would keep their pressures nice and low. Yeah, allow that clot to form, and then take a look at your labs. Take a look at your ABG. What's the base excess? Because that's showing anaerobic metabolism. What's your lactate? What's your what's your What's your uh, coagulation function? You know, you want that INR less than 1.5. You want that base excess to be, you know, greater than minus four. Um, but at that point, we know what the problem is: mm-hmm. it's hemorrhage. So we just continue to give FFP right. and packed cells.
0: Right. percent you, You're following those parameters of the ABG, the blood pressure to mm-hmm. say we've given enough. Exactly we we've got we've got hemostasis we've got control of
1: bleeding right and really really the best you know the best blood is whole blood and we didn't institute that protocol where i was at the short time i was there but i know friends that did institute you're talking about the walking donor walking donor protocol. right tell us a little bit about that so uh, if you have a patient that is severely exsanguinating and you know that your blood supply isn't going to keep up to the patient um, there is a system that's in place, usually with one of the staff sergeants, um, to where they we didn't have a big voice or a speaker system to say if you're whatever blood type, please come to the FST. Mm. When, what you do is essentially when you do call the walking donor, is that person's not allowed to fly for a certain number of days, and that person can't go on missions for a certain number of days. So you're limiting manpower to the commander. But when it's needed, it's needed, and um, I've had friends that had to institute it. In which the first time it was instituted, it took an hour and a half to get blood. That's wow. a long time to get and so, fresh so just whole to, blood.
0: So just to clarify to the listeners, these are these are Sold- soldiers on the base yep. that have already been typed and screened yep. for infection, blood infections, and that kind nope. of stuff. Nope. Nope. So, so that's you, the you only reason why it's not FDA approved.
1: That's in the state side. I mean, they they could have a virus. The, the chance of having a virus is very uh-huh. slim. They could have a virus or a bacterial infection that he could give to the next patient. But the fact of the matter is they HIV test, they CMV test, they, t- they test, H- uh, hep B test before you even go overseas. And the chance of you engaging in any kind of high-risk activity that would give you sure. the virus is very, very small.
0: So you have a patient who's extenuating, right. you, you institute the protocol. Institute the protocol. These folks show up, right. you draw blood off of them, yep. and it immediately... You infuse it, and then it's infused. Is there any? How much blood do you take off from from an individual? Do you have multiple individuals? You just go off
1: your ABGs, then you go off your base excess. You try to you know go off your hemoglobin, off your ABG, go off your um, your pH to make sure that you're given you know, a right amount. And, and basically looking at how much you're losing, if you can replace it with whole blood as hands down, the best way to go. That's fast. So my, my friend that had an institute and it took an hour and a half. The first time they fine tuned it. They're like, this is too long. We got to have that blood right away. The next time they did, it was within 20 minutes. Wow. Yeah. And
0: how much blood are they going to take off a healthy soldier? Um,
1: I don't know. I think they take a couple units. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So you might have multiple soldiers you, show you up. You will have
1: multiple soldiers that show up. Absolutely, there won't be just one. Yeah. You will have five, ten lined up, yeah. yep. and the blood is already warmed, which is also it helpful. is. Yep, it's warmed. It goes in immediately. It's it's. We got factors involved with it. You got platelets in it. You know, you got cryo with that. Mm-hmm. You got factor seven in that. You know, it's. Uh, it's a beautiful it's process a to have. Yeah, yeah it is. That's great. Yeah. What roles did uh, TXA Factor Seven those kind of drugs uh, play? It's it's a huge role. I mean, you want that clot to form and stay formed, and so we would immediately we just didn't even question. We just gave a lot of TXA. Uh-huh. You know, if we.
0: I'm assuming. I mean, obviously, you spoke earlier that your bases are set up in a way in which your response time to injury sites are are well within a golden hour. Yes. Or, and so, you're, th- it was probably never that question
1: of... It was gold, within that golden hour once it was safe for the um, medevac team to get medevac. there. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah.
0: So, so there, there, there may perhaps be that question, when was the injury? Did, right. d- uh, has it been within three hours for so, TXA? Did you ask that question a lot? So, you
1: what happens is, the soldier Whoever puts the tourniquet on usually has a pen, and they write the time that they put Mm -hmm. the tourniquet on. So then you know kind of when the time of injury was, when Mm -hmm. that tourniquet was placed. Mm
0: Did you have folks that came to you uh, that fell outside of that three-hour window for TXA that you would not give TXA to?
1: No, we they, we always they got always with it. Now then, you got to question what their pH is, and, and you know, I think it's if it's seven point one, it's not going to get activated. If it's seven point one, factor seven's not going to work well either. That's interesting. Yeah, and it, I never had it where it fell into that realm. I mean, we had it where it fell into the realm of death, and then patients that experienced IEDs that we were able to take care of but it never dropped that low for me.
0: Yeah. DDAVP, amicar. are those drugs that you nope, used?
1: Nope, 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 no.
0: Were surgeons using any special surgical techniques to
1: manage hemorrhage um,
0: that you can think of?
1: Not that I can think offhand that would be any different than what we do in civilian, other than we were heavy tourniquet use, heavy yeah. tourniquet use. You do not release that tourniquet until you know or feel that it's been controlled. You do not remove the foreign body until you have complete exposure, surgical exposure before removing it, so you know you're not pulling it from a major vessel or anything right. like that. Right.
0: And so tourniquets would get so removed.
1: exposure was big. Uh huh. Yeah. And tourniquets would get removed intraoperatively. They may keep it on there, so it's all about damage control. You know, yeah. if they felt they had it controlled, they may actually just keep it on and then send them to Bagram. Oh with wow. With it on. That's yeah. so
0: you're so. That gives some uh, context to just how briefly you were managing these patients. Yes. Yeah. So you might you, Sometimes you, you, you might long at all. damage control surgery on this patient, right. leave a tourniquet on an extremity, right. patch them up, and they're getting out of there. Right. Give
1: them, give them blood enough to survive the transfer over to Bagram.
0: How long do you know is the military considering length of time for safe tourniquet usage before they really are itching to get that thing off?
1: Yeah. So... They didn't really focus on Where length of at? time so much as just getting that clot formed. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, obviously you want it off as soon as you can get it. But I don't know that there was never really anything in the clinical practice guidelines that discussed how long one could stay on.
0: I know, I guess from other literature, like four to six hours, you start thinking about it's And I don't know if it ever went the, that long. Right.
1: Yeah. yeah. Hopefully they were at Bagram at that point getting... They had more access to surgeons at that point there, vascular surgeon, uh-huh. uh, ortho-trauma. Um, granted, we had ortho-trauma, but they have more services at Bagram to be able to care for those right, kind of injuries.
0: Right, Now, there's been talk in trauma services, uh, you know, resuscitative endovascular balloon occlusion of the aorta, or REBOA, which is an endovascular technique through the femoral arteries. You go up, inflate a balloon, control sure. massive hemorrhage from the aorta.
1: Is that being used in forward surgical teams? So they talk about the problem that will occur if you ligate the external iliac, if you ligate the external carotid and the chance of stroke, if you ligate the internal carotid, like they've already seen these instances of this is the only way we can control this bleed. I didn't have to face any of that, but in our clinical practice guidelines, in the in our book, First to Cut, it talks about and, and even in a situation in which uh, a CRNA I knew IED went off the shrapnel went into the guy's mouth and hit his external carotid well wow. he bled he, he bled and died before they could care for it but you know would you clamp that side of the neck to prevent that bleed from happening I, if that's your only choice then you do it mm-hmm. yeah but we didn't have balloons we did not mm-hmm. have those balloons
0: hopefully you're going into surgically Open up, explore, and right. then manage major bleeds that right. are that are within. That's how we that you can't apply tourniquets to right. chest, abdomen, pelvis, you're cutting to explore.
1: Right, or pack and pack wounds. You know that may be bleeding. Pack it, right. pack it, pack it, pack it, pack it, and warm the patient up. You know, warm them, warm them, warm them. Hot ORs. Hot ORs. 85 to 105.
0: And you were able to manage that. Even I mean, you're pretty permanent structures. You're remote yeah. Afghanistan. It's cold. There outside, is, yeah, but your your ors are hot. nice and hot. Yep,
1: yeah. toasty. Good.
0: Our <laughs> soldiers using hemostatic agents, so quick clot, should have so we stand, those stopped kind of
1: using things. them. Is that right? We stopped using them. I guess they were causing more harm than good with the burns around the site that they. That's were, fascinating. Yeah. So you
0: didn't see so tourniquets, but not very many
1: tourniquets, but not the.
0: What quick about clot. packing with uh, dressings that had hemostatic agents on they them? They did. Like they just no? tourniqued wow.
1: it and then brought them in. But maybe they brought them into us faster than you know than the need to use that. I don't yeah. Know.
0: So your goal was damage control resuscitation surgery primarily. What were the stop points to surgery before a patient would be transported to more definitive surgery? So when you go, hey, we've done enough, let's get out of here.
1: Right. When they felt they controlled the bleed. It didn't matter if you closed the... like. It was literally like, yeah, close it. Don't put that much time into it. They can do it there. You yeah. know? Uh, put a sterile dressing on it, put an IO band on it, send them out. Um, and for head trauma? Head trauma, mannitol, dilantin... Um, try to close that clock. ketamine, try to, were you opening the heads in your, sometimes they were open, Uh um, and then send them out. And usually, unfortunately on those cases, it was try to get them alive to Germany so the family can be with them one last time.
0: How long postoperatively uh, would your patient stay with you again? Very, very quickly. I mean, basically until the helicopter's coming in to get him right, out. Right, right. You, you didn't really have a, a we didn't really leave. to manage. Once
1: they were in the OR, we didn't really leave the OR. That's interesting. Unless it was um, a case that we did for the OGA, yeah. the governmental agency. Yeah. For us, that's how it was. Right.
0: How did your team manage patients whose injuries were not survivable? What kind of decision-making did you use? Right. What kind of communication did you use amongst the team to say, hey, this isn't,
1: this isn't looking good? And this is a circumstance that I took from here over there, and that was we had a patient that it was an accidental discharge. It hit his aorta. It was a one-single entrance wound, exit wound, but the guy came not in a good color. Um, the time of injury was undetermined. And we get the patient there, and then it reminded me of a ruptured AAA that we had had at the hospital, in which they were doing CPR, bringing the patient back, because the patient had it here in Nashville. Yeah. And by the time we got on the table, once you go, it's full press. Once you go, you go. And uh, I asked them to stop doing CPR. It was asystole. And uh, at that point... Uh asked the anesthesiologist, you know, uh, the anesthesiologist asked the surgeon, if we don't have any motion on an ultrasound, are you okay with not proceeding? And he said, yes. And we, they looked at the wall motion. There was no wall motion. Had they cut? They did not cut. And that was they done. And the patient died before we started. And that was a ruptured
0: uh, AAA. Correct.
1: And so here we got an undetermined gunshot wound that probably hit the aorta or iliac who bled out, came to us. We're about to go full court on all of our bl- our blood, all of our FFP to, and we tried A- you know ACLS drugs with epi, uh, you know some atropine uh, to tra- transcutaneously pace, and then it was like, do we move forward with this case? You know, and I asked the general surgeon, are you are you willing to see if there's wall motion? Like, and we don't know how long this has been, and then he decided to use the ultrasound also to look mm-hmm. at the heart and said no we're not moving forward with this case.
0: No wall motion.
1: Right. Uh, no wall motion. Day. Who knows how long patient yeah. don't look good or not regimortis or anything. Sure. But yeah.
0: And intraoperatively, let's say a patient makes it to the OR, you're mm-hmm. working on them. Typical stop points for trauma cases. That Is you would control, use, the yeah, c- control the bleed. Control the bleed. If it's, uh, if you're having difficulty, w- w- did you get into the point of, of
1: not having enough products to continue or? No, never. I never ran into that problem. Thankfully. And with the walk-in donor, I don't think, I don't know if any other places had that problem. Yeah. And if it really got critical like that, I think the first sergeant would be able to call to another base and ask to air supply blood. And they would be able to helicopter and the medevacs would probably go pick that up for us. Pretty quick. Yep. Yeah. That's great. Talk a little bit
0: more about the communication of your team. What kind of pre briefing did you use before patients would come in with your team?
1: So we would do every Wednesday we had a meeting to where we'd all stand and learn something about surgery, communication with each other. We would break out into teams. You know, I would teach my medics airway management. Another time they may break out into teams where the medics learn to place chest tubes. But we broke out and educated one another um, uh, different surgery equipment. Um, and so that was our preparation. We never really went into like practice mode of Well, we did do work in the practice. When the first week we got there, we, we practiced a normal trauma patient applying monitors. How long is this taking us to get this stuff set up? Mm-hmm. Um, how can we make it more efficient? I, I didn't even think about that. So we did prepare with non-trauma patients and, um, Pretend situations. Yeah. Before we got the. Real and thing. So you had weekly meetings, and then yep. say
0: say a call comes in. You've got a patient arriving. Mm-hmm. Was there a meetup, Any no. brief on the patient? You, you just, run
1: right to the ATLS station, and, and you stand there go. and get ready. And I'm yeah. dropping my platelet or my plasma in the warmer and waiting.
0: Yeah. Touch on your post briefing. Touch on this. Uh, yeah. So once uh, the yet patient's yet after laughed,
1: you'd be tired. I mean, we, cases, especially special Force, they do night missions, and it's just cases that are two, three, four in the morning. And then after the case is done, you immediately turn your OR over, get everything prepared again as if another patient's coming and you're just exhausted and you would still stand there and say, what are three things we did good? What are three things we did bad? and that's
0: happening i mean immediately after the case yep, it's not the next day this or the isn't next
1: to wait or, this is immediately after yeah, yeah. because you need to learn right away
0: you felt like people learned a lot from
1: this so our first sergeant would normally start it because he would be back observing the whole time never yeah. be involved in the patient care and could say this is what i saw and started off yeah top Top's first. That's another top dog. So like first sergeant's usually called top. So uh-huh. top would always start it off. Nice.
0: Yeah. And you felt like you learned a lot from those post briefs.
1: We learned a lot as a team. Yeah. Yeah. And, in things that we could change How to make function. it better. And, and the, for example, that with my other friend is an hour and a half for a walking donor to get that first warm blood. Right. And, you know, right. you got to work on that. That's an right. easy one to pick out. For us, it was with um, my medic. It was like, try once with the eight, with the 16, you don't get it to an 18, you know? Yeah. You're having a hard time with your 16s. You're going to practice on me next.
0: I think something that quick, you know, it's surprising sometimes when things don't go smoothly in the OR in a civilian center. and. You just kind of get through it. And then, you know, you get to the point of closing. The surgeon packs up, walks out and leaves. And then the anesthesia team kind of cleans up and we go and take the patient to pack you or ICU or whatever. And you just kind of go on about your day. And then everyone kind of maybe talks and mumbles. And, you know, you might think about, man, how could I have done that differently? Everyone breaks off their own direction after the case is done. It seems like a simple, quick, three good things, three things we could have learned. that might help civilian teams and the
1: one thing i've learned from my experience in dealing with civilian traumas is i talk out loud all the time my pressure is our base excess is i'm informing the docs too i mean it's it should be more than just you and and you shouldn't be scared to say what you think you know yeah Uh, and to communicate hey i'm using pressers on this bowel case um Whatever the problem may be, just as long as you express it out loud, it's, oh, communication's always good.
0: Yeah, and it goes both ways.
1: Yep, exactly. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. If they're struggling to bleed or hit something, let me know too so I can react also. Yeah, right. Exactly.
0: Well, anything else on uh, damage control resuscitation that you like to share? Lessons right. that you learned, things that you brought just, back with you?
1: Yeah, just, um, I guess it's twofold. for one is the, the profound difference in room temperatures. You no. know, this isn't. Uh, keep your surgeon comfortable. Keep your staff comfortable. This is profound sweating to where you might even put a camel pack on and drink during the. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, this is hot. And the second one is um, the urgency to really take care of this guy. You mm-hmm. know, um, how how a little bit emotional it is too, even afterwards. Uh, When you go to their uh, hero um, event, their sort of funeral event for the base and just the picture of the soldier in the army times when you get it to see who he is and where he's from, it's just, there's so much more. And then when you're eating your meals, you know, and then it flashes every day who died in Afghanistan for that month. You know, there's a reminder there all the time when you're Mm -hmm. there of just how important your job is Hmm. Um, beyond anything I've ever seen. You know, we don't have our television networks showing who passed away in Asheville. You know, Um, uh, you see it every day. Every day you go eat those faces pop up on the television screens to say remembrance of what taps played. Wow, yeah, it's, it's pretty profound.
0: Yeah, yeah. that definitely uh, uh, creates a profound context in which you work.
1: Yeah, and live absolutely. And the importance of what you do, you know, yeah. another thing. Yeah, the importance of what they do. You know, right. Like they just lost their lives doing it.
0: Right. Well, I think that's a that's a phenomenal segue uh, to wrap up this this talk sure. on damage control station, and then. Uh, In a moment, we're going to come back with Dustin Degman and and have part three of this interview, which will focus on how do folks get involved as military CRNAs? How do they train into that? How can they get involved once they're CRNA? And then how we can support our friends and family who serve in the military. Yeah, I agree. All right, great. Part three coming up. Coming up.